Again, let me say good morning. I want to preach this morning on the topic of temptation. Temptation. For anyone battling temptation, there may be no better text for you to examine than our passage today. Will you turn there? Matthew chapter 4. We'll start in verse 1. Matthew 4, 1 through 11. This is a famous passage, the temptation or the testing of Jesus. We'll read Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then we'll go back and dive carefully into each verse. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they'll bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. And Lord, we ask for your help in temptation, in overcoming it, and in finding in you everything we need. In Jesus' name, amen. Boy, temptation, that's a tough one to preach on. Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything but temptation. That's the one that gets me. You know, there's a story about the Sunday school teacher teaching the little kids the Lord's Prayer, and she overheard one little boy praying, Lord, you don't have to lead us into temptation. We can find that all on our own. We don't need any help. I can relate. True story. I was in the ninth grade. I was on then what we called the academic team. You may call it the quiz bowl, but can you picture it? Four of our players versus Four of their players, two or three different matches is how you did it, and that would be a given competition. I was feeling pretty proud that day because for the first time, I had been asked to play on the varsity team as a freshman. It's kind of a big deal. (laughs) A big deal, that is, until after the first match, I was told by the coach, walk down the hall, and you'll now be playing junior varsity. (laughs) Oh, well. I walk down, I settle in. And the second match begins, and I couldn't believe what I was hearing. Through some sort of mix-up, I was being asked the very same question set that I had, I had just heard moments before. I, I knew every question. I knew every answer. I didn't know what to do. So I just started answering them. Like all of them. It was a one-man barn burner. I was like the Steph Curry of nerds. 
There may be an ESPN 30 for 30 special one day on the greatest junior varsity quiz bowl performance in history. It was incredible. It was also, of course, cheating. After the match, I sat there. My conscience burned. I was shaking. I was so ashamed of what I'd done. And upon reflection, I was ashamed not just of my sin, but the fact I'd sold my integrity for what? Every man has his price. For some, it's millions. Apparently, mine is a junior varsity quiz bowl victory. <laughs> After the matches were completed, I, I walked up to a group of coaches I could see were talking to my coach. And I just walked up and interrupted them, and I blurted out, I cheated! I suppose part of me was shocked because they weren't shocked. I thought, I thought they just assumed I was a genius. I think their reply was something like, no kidding, Steph Curry. <laughs> I, I say that to say that there will be those uh, who've never been tempted in exactly that way. Some of you are thinking this right now. Because you've never been tempted to cheat in a junior varsity quiz bowl competition, you're asking yourself, how could anyone do that? What kind of man is this? <laughs> I can't believe someone would fall into that kind of temptation. But I'm here today to tell you, there is one who never reacts with self-righteousness. Ironically, even though he was the righteous one. There is one who never acts with condemnation, although if anybody had a right to condemn, it would have been him. There is one here today who will never look at you and say, I just don't understand the power of temptation because he himself was tempted. His name is Jesus. Look at what the writer of Hebrews says about our Lord Jesus in chapter 2. He says, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. If anybody's going through temptation, I want today to be an encouragement to you to see our Lord went through the full weight of temptation. Look at what Hebrews writes again two chapters later. We do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. See, there, people have a very common objection to these verses. When you say things like, you know, Jesus went through temptation, people will object. They'll say, yeah, but Jesus never sinned. So how could he possibly understand what I'm going through? And let's be honest, week after week, some of us, we come to church, and there are certain people in the church, and they're, they're so morally pure, you look at them, you go, their family's so put together. Look at them. They never, they, there's some people you wonder, do you ever struggle with anything? There's no way that these, you look around, some of these people in church, you say, well, there's no way they could possibly sympathize with my struggles. They've never done what I've done. And sure, fellow sinners who've never been tempted to cheat, say at a quiz bowl, could think, how could anyone do it? But that's never how Jesus reacts. He never reacts with self-righteousness. He understands the weight of every particular temptation. You might say he was tempted to cheat. He was tempted to cheat God. Tempted to follow his own agenda. And just because he never gave in, see, he was victorious, but just because he never gave in does not mean that, that, that he's never felt the powerful pull of every temptation. In fact, as Douglas O'Donnell points out, the fact that he was successful in overcoming temptation, if anything, it shows he feels the weight of temptation more than us, not less. Have you ever thought of it that way? Who feels the weight more? Let's imagine two weightlifters in a competition, and they're both going to try to deadlift 500 pounds. Who feels the weight more? And the first one picks it up and gets the weight 
to his knees and just at his knees drops the weight. That's it. I'm out. The second one gets it to his knees and then somehow to his waist and then with two movements, shoulders and above his head and drops. Now, who felt the full weight? The one who dropped out or the one who saw it successfully through all the way to the victory? If anything, the fact that Jesus was successful all the way through Satan's temptation shows not that he felt the weight of temptation less, but that if anything, he felt it more than those of us who've fallen along the way. My point is I want everybody who feels like a struggler, for everybody who feels like I'm a failure, and by the way, all those quote-unquote morally pure people who think, well, what do they struggle with? Can I tell you the irony? They're looking at you going, what do you struggle with? See? How could you possibly understand? Because of Jesus' testing, there is someone who understands. He gets us, even though he was without sin. He really is the best of both worlds. On the one hand, he's victorious, so he has all power to save, but he was fully tempted, so he has the ability to understand what you're going through. You might say it this way. The temptation of Jesus was utterly unique and yet universal. Unique yet universal. Listen, Jesus was the Messiah, so the temptation in Matthew 4 reveals some things about what it meant for him to be Messiah, and that's unique because Jesus was unique. We're not the Messiah. He is, and so there are some things that are unique, and yet in Hebrews 4, it says, look, doesn't it? In every respect has been tempted as we are. And so there are some things that must be universal. And so that'll be the framework. Let's go back through the text, and let's try to look at each temptation, and I'll try to show you what was unique, what did it mean for Jesus, and in each time, what what did it mean for us? What's unique, what's universal? Got it? And we'll walk right through. There's three temptations, three points. There you go. Verse 1. Let's get right to it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. What is the setting? (laughs) Jesus is coming straight from his baptism. Have you considered this? Jesus' hair may still be wet from the Jordan River, and immediately what happens? Can you imagine? I mean, the sky ripped open, the Holy Spirit descends as a dove, and the voice of the Father comes from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. What a day. What a, what a launching pad for the public ministry of Jesus. And before that public ministry commences, there must be a testing And have you noticed, it is often the case, here Jesus comes from the baptism, hearing the voice of the Father, this incredible thing. After these incredible spiritual mountaintops, isn't it often the case, that's when the enemy strikes? Isn't it true? I mean, am I the only one who went to youth camp, summer youth camp as a kid? Right? The spiritual mountaintop, the bus ride back home, right? Anger and rage and filth, right? What, what happened here? That spiritual mountaintop. I think Satan wants to strike immediately, hoping that like Jesus' parable in Matthew 13, the, the seed that gets on the rocky soil and can't get good roots. I think Satan is hopeful that that's the case in people's lives. Don't be surprised after you go through a spiritual mountaintop, after you take some great step of obedience, after you take a step of faith, don't be surprised if it's then that you find the attacks of Satan. Don't slow down. They ramp up. It could be because as long as you're flowing in the current of culture, you're no threat to the enemy. It's when you turn and begin swimming upstream that you feel the full force of the enemy. Well, who brings about the testing or the temptation? Testing and temptation are the same word in Greek. So you can call this the temptation of Christ or the testing of Christ. Uh, who, Who brings it about? Isn't this interesting? Notice the by and the by. 
he was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So we got some good doctrine here. He was tempted by the devil. We know from other verses in Scripture, God does not tempt anyone to evil. God's not trying to lure anyone to sin. Of course not. Satan is. And so Satan tempts Jesus. But, and this is the good news, while Satan thinks he's running things, God is overruling. And this whole thing was under the sovereign control of God. And, 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 and I know we're just one verse in, and we've got to move along, but I hope you're encouraged. And if you're going through a time of temptation right now, even if it feels like you're in a wilderness, know that what the enemy intends for evil, God intends for good. He will work in this, that he's over all. And I just think that's interesting. By the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit to be tempted by the devil. Okay, and after fasting, verse 2, after fasting, that means not eating. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights... He was hungry. And here we have, I believe, the greatest understatement in the New Testament. <laughs> Some of you are hungry after 40 minutes, right? Are you like me? 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry? No kidding. Why does Matthew put that in there? Can I tell you why I think he adds he was hungry? Because he's trying to push back against what naturally happens in our minds. When Jesus does something, we, we all, at least I always do this, yeah. But easy for him, he's Jesus. So he fasted 40 days. He could have fasted 400 days. What's the difference? He, was, he just seemed to be human. He wasn't really human. Matthew's saying, no, get your facts right. He was human. And fasting 40 days, which is about the, the utter limit of what a human uh, can do without food, after that he was gaunt and he was emaciated and he was weak and he was hungry. And Matthew's telling us that Jesus was fully God. Of course he was divine. And he was fully human in the incarnation. He wasn't either or. So quite naturally, Satan's first temptation comes as he looks out at that rocky Judean wilderness where there's nothing and he tempts him, of course, to turn these stones into bread. He figures, I'll hit him where he's weakest. Of course, just a brief note about fasting. Uh, Satan may have uh, misunderstood. Fasting 40 days uh, only heightens a person's spiritual power. It doesn't diminish it. So I'll leave it to you to discuss later. I'll leave it to you to think about after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, was he at his weakest or his strongest? I don't know. Verse 3. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. <sighs> That's an awfully subtle temptation, isn't it? On the surface, of course, there's nothing wrong with eating bread. But to command these stones, you can imagine little, little outcroppings of, of rocks. Maybe after 40 days, 40 nights, they even, the way the sun hit them, maybe they even looked like little loaves of bread. Uh, no, I don't know. What's going on here? Is it just a temptation to satisfy a legitimate bodily appetite in an illegitimate way? Maybe. I think the key to understanding this temptation is that little word, if. If you are the son of God. Here I think Satan is using the same tactic that he pulled on Adam and Eve in the garden. He's trying to plant a seed of doubt that God really cares for him. No different than back at the Garden of Eden. Do you remember in the Garden of Eden, the serpent says to, to Adam and Eve, did God really say you couldn't eat from these trees in the garden? I mean, it seems like he's holding out on you. It, it, you, won't, you will surely not die. God knows that when you eat of this tree, your eyes will be open. You'll know good from evil. Here, take, eat. And now it's the same thing. 
here. I think, I think that, that, that he knows in the verses just before this, as I said at the baptism, that, that the sky rips open and God says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. You cannot deny it. That is the word that, is the word that has come from God. And you build your life on that. That is the kind of thing that can springboard a ministry. I am God's beloved son. But now out here in the wilderness, now things look a little different. And now as you're emaciated and gaunt and Satan says, if you are the son of God, what happened to this is my beloved son? Now, if you are the son of God, well, command these stones. Look, Jesus, look. You can almost hear the tempter saying, look, you're in the wilderness. And on top of that, God led you here. Remember what it said? That the, he was led by the Spirit. So God led you here to the wilderness? I don't know. I know, you heard, I know you heard some things and you saw a dove at your baptism. I know that was a really important spiritual moment for you. But are you sure you can trust your memory on this? Maybe it seems to me that if you're the Son of God, why would God lead you into these circumstances? This is no way for the Son of God to be treated. Certainly not one who is beloved. I'm just saying. Command these stones. And of course, a command is, uh, the command to command would be a command. You see that, right? Satan is saying, command these stones, which if he did it, would mean he's following the command of Satan to command the stones. But just one word, you can do it, and no one will know. It'll solve your immediate problem of hunger. And best of all, you'll know when you have good things to eat, then you'll know God loves you by your circumstances. So what happened? What did Jesus say? Well, apparently Jesus had been going through Deuteronomy in his quiet times. <laughs> Because in all three responses, he quotes Deuteronomy 8, and Deuteronomy 6, and Deuteronomy 6. He's right there when Israel is out there in the wilderness, and Moses preaches to him. And he remembers these direct parallels. And he remembers when Moses said, he, he tested you to see in the wilderness whether you'd keep his commandments. And he humbled you with hunger and then fed you with manna. That he might make known to you that man doesn't live by bread alone, but he lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. In other words, he's realizing, wait, God was testing, he's testing me in the wilderness just like he was testing Israel in the wilderness. Israel was there for 40 years. I've been out here 40 days. And the test fundamentally came down to who can be trusted. In the midst of these circumstances, who can be trusted? So he looks at Satan and he said, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. No, Satan, I will not shortcut this fast. I know what you're saying, that if I'm out here in these bad circumstances, I must be God forsaken, but I know my Bible. I know better than you, and I'm going to trust my dad. That's what that verse means. I will obey God in the middle of the wilderness. I won't forget what he said at my baptism. I'll trust that I'm his beloved son. And Satan, you're lucky I don't turn you into a loaf of bread. That would have been nice if he'd done that. Now, Jesus, what was it unique? What was universal? What was unique? I think Jesus passed the test that Adam and Eve failed. You know, over and over in the New Testament, Jesus is referred to as the second Adam. What does that mean? Adam was supposed to represent all that humanity could be, and he does not. Jesus represents all that a human life was meant to be, thriving in obedience. And I think this first temptation shocked Satan. I thought, he didn't think there'd be three rounds. He thought it'd be a knockout punch in round one. He thought it was a layup because he had done this before. He's saying, wait a minute, first Adam, second Adam. First Adam was no problem. Second Adam will be no problem. 
In the first Adam, Satan's thinking to himself, I had all the disadvantages. The first Adam was in a garden of paradise. If he doubted God's presence, just look around. What what could Satan possibly tempt Adam and Eve with? They had everything. (laughs) Surrounded by all these fruits. And the second Adam, he's in a wilderness. This should be no problem. He'll be hungry. He'll be scared. He'll be insecure. No one's been able to stop him yet. So when he sees Jesus, look around at all these circumstances and to say, no, I'm going to trust him. God's word at my baptism said, I'm his beloved son, and I'm going to live like that. Well, what does that have to do? So Jesus, what's unique to Jesus? He proved he's the second Adam. He, he proved he, he succeeded where Adam and Eve failed. What does that have to do with us? What's his first temptation have to do with us? Same thing. This is about who can be trusted in the dark times. Who can be trusted in the wilderness? Who can be trusted when things aren't going your way? Are you going to take the temptation to numb yourself with, with some illicit uh, means? Are you going to temptation to cheat? Are you going to take this temptation to take the easy way out? Or are you going to say, I can trust my dad. I can trust my heavenly father. The temptation for us or the application for us, I'd word it this way. Don't doubt in the dark what he told you in the light. At the baptism, he told you, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. My favor rests on him. So don't doubt in the dark what he told you in the light. In other words, when you, when you leave Centricid camp, God spoke to your heart. Don't three weeks later say, well, maybe that wasn't real. When you go through a revival or when you hear God's word on a Sunday morning, on a, on a rainy Tuesday, don't doubt what he told you on a Sunday. Does that make sense? Don't doubt in the dark what he told you in the light. All right, then second temptation, Satan doubles down. <laughs> he thinks, oh, okay, okay, I see. You're going to quote Deuteronomy 8. You're going to appeal to Scripture. Satan thinks, well, I know the Scriptures too. So here's round two. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. Can you imagine being in Jerusalem 15 stories up? Or if you consider the depth of the deepest parts of the valley below, maybe as much as 450 feet in the air, very high up. And he said to him, if you're the son of God, Throw yourself down. And here he quotes Psalm 91, which is kind of the preeminent psalm. This is the psalm I read before people go into surgery. This is the psalm I read at hospital beds, right? This is the psalm that we read when we, we, we want to know and be assured of God's protection. It's kind of the preeminent psalm of God's protection. It says he'll command his angels concerning you and to guard you in all your ways. Satan leaves that out, of course. On their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. In other words, you'll be so protected by God, you won't even stub your toe. So throw yourself off the temple, and just as you're about to fall to your death, you just sort of land like a little feather on a cloud of pillows. Well, it's the same temptation again, I think, as the first one, just in a more dramatic form. It's twisted scripture. If, you see that again? If you are the son of God. There it is again. If you're the son of God, Satan is saying, prove it. Act like it. In a way, I think Satan's temptation here is to make God, you know, act like God. (laughs) Be a Messiah of power and force. Don't be this veiled, weak thing that you know everybody's going to reject. Oh, you'll have a few ragtag rejects. Some fishermen and a tax collector or two will follow and believe. But come on, Jesus, dazzle the people, wow them, make them believe in you. Look, there would be no need for a cross, no need for the Sermon on the Mount, no need for parables and mysteries. People question you. Oh, 
And, and, and a lot of times people question you, Jesus, and you just remain silent, but you don't have to. Oh, if you would prove it. If you, if you jumped off the temple, the most highest point in the, the, the holy city, oh, that would silence everything. And wouldn't that feel good? Wouldn't, doesn't it make you angry the way the Pharisees look at you and they doubt you? Boy, you could really silence them. Wouldn't that feel good? You doubt that I'm the son of God? Watch this. and Do a belly flop off the temple? Oh, man, wouldn't that feel good? You'd get all that revenge. Ha. They're, they're whispering right now that you're crazy. Even your own family members think you've lost your mind. Oh, they're going to say the same thing. You could even die and be risen from the dead, and there's going to be people saying, eh, I don't know. Here's your chance. Here's your chance. If you're the son of God. But he won't do it. Philip Yancey puts it like this. He won't do it because power, these great displays, can force obedience, but only love can summon a response of love. And here there's a kind of decision about what kind of Messiah, Messiah is going to be. And Jesus said to him, again, it is written. I love that. You see that in verse 7? Satan says, it is written. And Jesus says, again, it is written. The again there as if to say, you don't know your Bible as well as I do. The big difference is uh, you know the scriptures, but you have no intention of obeying them. By the way, that's how scripture gets twisted. If you're ever curious how cults develop and how people twist scripture, that you can do a deep dive and you can do textual studies. I'm telling you, the worst offenses in twisted scripture are when you know the scripture, but you don't intend to follow it. That's twisted scripture. Satan knows the scripture with no intention of actually doing it. And so Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He goes back to Deuteronomy, this time chapter 6. What was the test in the wilderness in chapter 6? They cried out in the wilderness for water. They doubted that God cared about them. They did not trust. Satan is saying, force God's hand, you know, silence any lingering doubts about your relationship with God. But this would be to test God as Israel did in the wilderness at Massa. Meribah, the son of God, can only live in a relationship of trust which needs no test. And so Satan wants him to create some artificially created crisis. And in refusing this temptation, Jesus is refusing to create a situation in which God would be obliged to act to save his son's life. He's not going to act as if God is there to, let me say it this way, he's not going to act as if God is there to serve him because he's there to serve God. And so if he were to throw himself off the temple, ironically, Satan says, throw yourself off the temple because you trust God so much. If he had to throw himself off the temple, it actually reveals he doesn't trust God. He trusts the Lord. And he's going to trust him. He's not going to create, manipulate some needless problem to force God to solve because deep down you're not sure if he can or not. Okay, what's unique to Jesus in this temptation? What's unique is, just like in the first temptation, he passed the test that Adam and Eve failed. In this temptation, Jesus passes the test that Israel fails in the wilderness. Just like he proved he's the true Adam, in this temptation, he proves he's the true Israel. He fulfills Israel in salvation history. Israel comes up out of the Red Sea. Jesus comes up out of the Jordan River at his baptism. Israel was in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus is in the wilderness 40 days. Israel was tested Jesus was tested. Israel failed and turned to idols. Jesus passed his test and trusted God. He wasn't going to presume on God's grace. That's what's unique to Jesus. He wasn't going to be a Messiah who just sort of performed parlor tricks whenever he was called upon 
to prove that he was who he said he was. No, no, no. He wasn't going to shortcut God's plan. What's the application for us? What's universal to us? Do not put the Lord thy God to the test. We say, what does that mean? I would word it this way. Don't presume upon God's grace. Don't presume upon God's grace. Tom, I'm sorry. I've never been tempted to do a swan dive off the temple and just presume that God has to now save me. Well, yeah, but I think examples of this second temptation happen all the time. I'll just fire off some. You say, I've never been tempted to do a swan dive off the temple and then demand that God bail me out, and yet... Have you ever heard, God, I'm going to dive into this marriage with an unbeliever, and I'm going to expect you to make it work because, hey, you'll give your angels charge over me. God, I'm going to throw myself into these filthy websites, but I'm then going to ask you to make me have a pure heart and a clean conscience. God, give me good health, but I'm going to ignore all common sense rules for health. How about this one? Bless my kids, Lord. Keep them on the right path. You're going to bring them to church? No, 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 no. No, I'll just throw them into adulthood. Don't put the Lord your God to the test. See? Now, are, are these convicting to you? They're convicting to me. Psalm 95 says, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart like you did in the wilderness where you tested God. As long as you're testing him, how can you expect to enter into his rest? I think that second temptation applies to us. Jesus understood it well. Well, there's no subtlety in the final temptation. Satan at this point drops all pretense and says what he's really after. I I really think the first one rattled him so much that he came at the first one from a different angle in the second one. By the time he gets the third temptation, the gloves are off. What I'm really after is pride and glory for myself. That's what Satan's after. Verse 8, again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He said, preacher, how do you do that? Uh... I mean, where is there a high mountain that you could see a vantage point for all the kingdoms? Yeah, I'm I'm not sure. Was it a vision? Probably. Would you stand by that? No. Well, and not only that, but all the kingdoms of the world and their glory means he somehow saw all the kingdoms. That means from the ancient dynasties to Rome to modern day superpowers, he saw all the kingdoms of the world. So you don't know exactly how that happened, verse 8. No, I don't. Aren't you the preacher, Dad? Yes, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> Sorry. I'm not sure how verse 8 happened. I, would, I personally think it's some sort of vision where the devil somehow lays before, as a spiritual being himself, able to lay before Jesus all these kingdoms. The point is this, verse 9. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Whew. It can all be yours. Satan's going for the coup de grace. Fine. You don't want to manipulate. You don't want to control the humans. You want them to love you and follow you because of love. Well, you could take this kingdom by force. If I understand your mission correctly, you've come as a king. And Jesus, you've come as this king to try to create this kingdom over heaven and earth. Well, I'll give it to you. You bow down to me right now and you can have this ball of dust and gas. Take what you deserve. Listen, if you want to get it your way, that's a long road. You want, you want free humans who freely love you, unmanipulated? Why not just take it, Jesus? All authority is yours for the taking. If you don't, oh, listen, the shadow of the cross falls early over Matthew's gospel. Here, 
All authority is yours for the taking. If you don't, you know what's going to happen. They'll kill you. They'll mock you. They'll crucify you. You can have the crown without the cross. The pain of, of, of Gethsemane, you can shortcut it. The agony of Golgotha, you can shortcut it. And don't you know the same, the, the, the same temptation? It's going to happen again. This, this temptation. Remember when, when, when Jesus says, we've got to go to Jerusalem. The Son of Man's going to be suffered. He's going to die. And Peter's like, no, no, never. No, we're not going to. You're not that kind of Messiah. Do you remember what he says? I've heard this before. Get behind me, Satan. I've heard this before. Remember when he was hanging on the cross? What did they shout? If you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. Save yourself. He's heard it all before. It's the same temptation. What kind of king are you going to be? What kind of Messiah are you going to be? Just like all the other Messiahs, where when you see power, you take it? Or are you going to go the way of the cross? Well, his response includes a great irony. <laughs> Here's Satan, who is willing to give away all the kingdoms of the world. In verse 10, Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan. For it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. There's an irony there, as if to say, if you really had dominion and power over everything, then how is it that I get to dismiss you right now? God alone is to be worshipped. I've always wrestled with what to do with this passage. And I think I've, I've finally landed that both, in a way of, in a manner of speaking, are true. My, my, my instinct is to say that Satan here is bluffing. Satan offers all the kingdoms of the world, but I want to say, but they're not his to give. That's true. But there's also scriptures that, that speak of uh, Satan's been given some measured authority, whatever nickname you want to use. He's the prince of this age, the ruler of this world. And so I think, in a way, Satan's going, yeah, I've been given this, this authority. But Jesus, it's as if to say, Jesus is saying, yeah, you think you're ruling, but God is overruling. This is my Father's world. And God alone is to be worshipped. Doesn't the Bible say the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof? Well, Jesus knew this is my father's world, and he's not going to lose everything to get. He knows going the way of the cross, the death, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, ironically, it's all going to be his anyway. So what does this mean for us? How, let me ask you, how many times have I been successfully uh, uh, tempted by the enemy? I've failed, but, but I've been tempted with stuff that is already mine in Christ. To lust, to steal, to lie, to get approval. What, 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 are you, what are you doing? Why would you fulfill an appetite in some illicit way when God says, I, I've got all, I, all pleasures. I, I, I can fulfill all these appetites. Why would I lie to get the approval of someone else when I stand under the approval of God in Jesus Christ? Why would I manipulate? Why would I ever steal if God says, I'm your good shepherd and I'll provide? So I guess my, 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 what's unique and what's universal, what's universal to us, don't sell out only to get what's already yours in Christ. Had Jesus bowed down, it, this temptation to have all the kingdoms of the earth, to have authority over all of the earth, he's going to have authority in the end. So that's what's universal to us. And in the end, verse 11, the devil left him. And behold, angels came and were ministering to him. 
Oh, man, I, I, don't, I, I can only imagine what kind of restoration. I have no doubt the angels just come in with all those casseroles. <laughs> right? Angel food, cake. <laughs> the devil left. Uh, the, listen, the devil left. Did you see that? Then the devil left him. Listen to me, church. The devil left because he always in the end has to leave. The Bible says resist the devil and he will flee from you. Listen, if anybody's going through the heat of temptation right now, temptation is tough, but it's always temporary. It can't last. And he's fed by angels. And that, that's what I'm trying to say. Jesus is going to get everything in the long run that Satan promised as a shortcut. Think about it. Turn these stones into bread. He is going to create miracle bread. Isn't he? He's going to feed 5,000. It's all going to be his. Throw yourself off the temple. You'll be miraculously delivered. It's literally going to, in, in Luke 4, after he uh, goes to the synagogue and reads, they go to throw, the Bible says they go, they take him up to the high place of the cliff because they're going to throw him off. But Jesus somehow, doesn't tell you how, somehow escapes. And, and bow down and worship me and all this, you'll be king over everything. At the very end of the book of Matthew, after the death, burial, and resurrection, what does it say in Matthew 28, 18? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples. He is king over all. He gets the very thing Satan could never provide. All authority in heaven and on earth. And Philippians says, one day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Because he didn't take that shortcut. Well, musicians are going to come, lead us in a time of response. I want you to think about the tender love of our Lord Jesus how much he understands you this morning, how much he loves you. I want you to think about this for a second. If he were not tempted, if he were not fully human, feeling the hunger, feeling the loneliness, feeling the agony, then I always wonder, you know, what would his disciples have said? So, so in a couple chapters, he's going to say to his disciples, he's going to send them out, and he knows one of the things they're worried about is one of the things that many people are worried about, how will I be provided for? What will happen? Financially, how am I going to make ends meet? You with me? And Jesus looks at him, and he tells him, take no thought for what you will eat, what you're going to wear, for your heavenly Father knows what you, what you need. Had he not gone through this temptation, see? And, and really, how would we have known about this temptation? He obviously had to share this with the disciples. There's no, nobody was there. It was Jesus and the devil. So he obviously told him, I wonder if somebody raised their hand. When Jesus says, don't worry about what you're going to eat. God can provide. I wonder if a disciple raised their hand and said, yeah, easy for you to say, Jesus. What do you know about being scared that God's not going to provide? What would you know about what it feels like to be tempted that God's not going to provide? And he can say, well, more than you think. And then later, he's going to tell his disciples in uh, Matthew 16, he's going to tell them, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but forfeits his own soul? And they say, well, what do you know about that, Jesus? What would you know what it's like to be tempted with all this privilege and power and to somehow reject that? And Jesus said, oh, more than you know. That's why the writer of Hebrews can say, he's not just speaking metaphorically. He can say to any struggler today, he gets you. He understands you. He can sympathize because he was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. That means the sinless one died on the cross to bear the punishment that we sinners deserved. He did it for us 
and our salvation. If you're battling temptation, won't you go to him? He's not ashamed of you. He's not going to be self-righteous or condemning. He loves you. Go to him. Turn to him. Find in him all that you need to overcome temptation. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are not a God who stayed far off and far removed from the power of temptation. Jesus, thank you that you went and engaged the enemy. And thank you, Lord, that you were victorious. Thank you that you can sympathize. You, in all points, were tempted as we are. And thank you that you are without sin. And so, God, help us. Help strugglers like us. Worn down by temptation, God, grant us grace to turn to you and to find in you all that we need. Thank you that we can trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.